So this is a conversation with Ronnie Shatah. He is the host of the Beirut Banyan podcast and organizer of the Walk Beirut tour. We spoke about Ronnie's experience with storytelling and his desire to maintain the memory of those we have lost, such as Samir Asir, the journalist and historian assassinated 15 years ago, and his father, Muhammad Shatah, the Lebanese diplomat who was assassinated in December of 2013. We of course touched upon the current crisis in Lebanon as well, since it has worsened beyond most predictions. So as usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Fire These Times. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon on buymeacoffee.com. And you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and Buy Me Coffee has both options. And if you cannot donate, you can still help by reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. I currently run the Beirut Banyan podcast, and whenever possible, I still run the Walk Beirut tour. Awesome. So let's start. Let's start with the podcast. You have a lot, a lot of guests. You've had quite a lot of guests, especially since uh, the October uprising, and you know, varied guests from all walks of life, uh, very varied uh, points of views, even you know. So taking in all of this if you want like um how long has it this been almost 10 months on how are you looking at how would you look at it now let's say well i'll i'll start off by saying that i think storytelling is a fantastic career Mm -hmm. and the nice thing about storytelling is that it's such a varied career that you can do so many things with it and uh i used to hate my voice and i (laughs) think the first episode i did back in July last year, the, mm-hmm. the one thing that rubbed me the wrong way was my voice. And I had to overcome that big hurdle that it's okay, everyone hates their voice. That's the initial stumbling block. Um, but uh, I love the medium. And I think you, you may agree with me, I mean, you're, you, you are a podcast powerhouse to your own <laughs> credit. I, I think this is the healthiest way of exchanging ideas. Mm. And I do. I say, I do. Yeah. And I, I say that because there's no interruption. Uh, it's as long as you'd like it. Now, maybe there's some, you know, preferences to certain lengths. And I, I started doing video as well. There's ways to kind of maybe enhance or maybe even play around with the with the medium. But the fact of get, getting an idea or several ideas across within mm. an hour or even longer, I mean, I think that's such a good way of dealing with a crisis because you don't want to deal with it too emotionally you don't want to let hysteria sort of uh, be the narrative thread you want to be able to focus in and really explore what's at stake and i kind of i found myself recording episodes every day sometimes two a day right when the protests started so i i, I really i wanted to make sure voices were heard and the ideas were coming through without filter, if you will, mm-hmm. just really letting the moment speak for itself uninterrupted. And I've been doing it almost every day, if not every day since uh, since then. Mm. It is there is this need to document uh, to the way I would call it or like other people have called it before is like, you know, bearing witness to what's going on. And 
I don't even know what can be done with with that information necessarily. You know, it's not that if we talk about it, we would necessarily have found the answers. But I have found, and it's not just me, of course. Like it would be one thing if I would just be kind of like talking to guests, and I'm the, you know, only listener, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it ends up being kind of like this therapy session that a handful of people might listen to if they want to. But I have gotten like very interesting feedback, and it is that really that. So the way the way it happened, uh, I started uh, about three months ago, and. Uh, I first I told myself I'm going to just do as many as I can with as many interesting people as I can. He kind of like pushed through, and then the the reviews will start coming in, and then based on that I will sort of decide how to continue. It's about duck, mm. uh, and I have I have found the, the reviews almost as interesting, if honestly sometimes even more interesting than some of some of the the episodes and. It's not it's because the reason why I'm saying this is because, you know, I would go into an episode sort of knowing more or less in advance what I want to talk about and so on. And reviewers or I'm, talk, I'm calling them reviewers, just random people who have reviewed it uh, on Twitter or on these podcast apps or whatnot. They sometimes come at it from different angles that I didn't really think about. So I'm, I'm going to try and continue doing more of this. And this is part of why I'm, I'm having you on as well, because as you as you start you know, you 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 hinted at it. You are a storyteller. You enjoy doing this quite a lot, and you the the walking uh, tour in Beirut. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Uh, how did that come about, and uh, what is it about? So for people who don't know, of course, so what is it about? And if you can also include, because I know this from your previous uh, interviews, if you can also include the, that last quote from Samir Osir that you would mention in in your tours. You know, Joey, I'm going to say from the beginning, you've become a seg- Segway expert as well. I know from your <laughs> earlier episodes, you always would note that. You're like, I'm not really good at the Segway, but here you are. You're doing the Segway. <laughs> Segways, I think, are really what makes a good story. And it, only, it, only, it only took 33 episodes. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> no, I, I, okay, I'll, I'll start back. I mean, the, the man who inspired me to give the tour is Samir Asir. Mm-hmm. And um, the first the first 14 episodes of the podcast were in a way trying to maybe expand on the walking tour through stories. And when I started the podcast, I thought of it as one interview, one conversation, maybe one topic would feed into the next topic. Uh, and it, the first episode I did was, was with uh, Ziad Zwayri, the, uh, the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, the follow-up episode was with Elias Malouf, who's a train enthusiast, rail network uh, enthusiast in Ottoman history and French mandate. And then the third one was with Muna al who's the Beit Beirut um, urban planning architect professor at AUB. But I did each episode knowing that the next guest would link up to the previous episode. Mm-hmm. And that's how I did my tour. I tried to cover every single topic worth sharing in a seven-hour story. And that's back in 2000, 2005, 2005. And I had to put it on hold with the July War of 2006. Mm-hmm. In 2009, I brought it back to life. And there was a... There, I don't know if you'll remember, I think it was the summer of 2009, when uh, New York Times 
wrote this article about Beirut being the number one tourist destination that summer. I started giving the tour in April that that year. By the summer season, there were so many people visiting Beirut. And I was, I think I was the only person back then giving a walking tour in Beirut. So in a way, I kind of benefited from that moment of relative stability, mm. where there was an influx of tourists, and there were many Lebanese curious about their own history. And the reason I chose Samir Asir as the, as the tribute is because I think there's no better storyteller in Lebanese history. Mm. I modeled the tour after his writings, after his passion, after his commitment to Lebanon's history. I mean, before, before politics, before anything, the man is a historian. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've seen it, that 600-page manual. <laughs> yes. It's a brick, Beirut. Yeah. And it's, a, I mean, it's everything you would want to know in the city's past, everything you'd want to celebrate, and everything you would want to maybe reflect on and mm-hmm. learn from. And when he was killed, I think my own, my own appreciation for people like him and my own curiosity took off. That's the summer of 2005. Yeah. Now, seven hours is very difficult on any person. <laughs> and I realized you said earlier uh, doing a podcast and you'd be the only person listening in. I mean, <laughs> I think there were some tours where you'd start off with 40 people. And at the end, you had 20 committed guests, but they looked tired. <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing as much as I could from, from the old lighthouse at the end of Bliss to British Hamoud. And everything in between so it was really it was a long it was maybe exhausting so i learned very quickly nobody's up for seven hours i trimmed and i trimmed and i ended up with four hours of stories and every stop connected to the next stop and i'll just give you an example Mm -hmm. i had to i I tried explaining the currency i mean think about it now (laughs) now now is insane yeah now is maybe the wrong time to try to (laughs) explain the currency but even, you know, the average person, and even, I mean, this this tour was designed really for Lebanese unaware of their past. But there were many tourists as well that were curious about the city's history. So it was a nice mix of locals and foreigners. And then trying to explain why you can use two currencies in one country. Why the lira is pegged. Why the central bank operates the way it does. Why the governor has to be a Maronite Christian. Mm-hmm. Why there are four vice governors, each one representing a certain confession. Why this system even exists to begin with. Once you start that kind of story, you can go many different places. And I would end up in very obscure places. Mm-hmm. But I would always make sure wherever that story finished, the next story began. And that was really the tour. It was meant to it was it was meant to deliver Beirut's history in a very entertaining, but also in a digestible way. And it included architecture, it included the civil war, it included neighborhoods that are unrecognizable today. Um, one neighborhood in particular is Wadi Abu Jmil in the heart mm-hmm. of Beirut, mostly inaccessible today and, and bulldozed yes. regardless. But very, very determined to bring that history to life. And I think Samir Asir did that through print. He did it very well. I was trying to do it in a very amateur way, trying to do it through a walking tour through oral narration and through maybe a, an engaging way that people would not get bored. And I, I never did anything chronologically. I never stuck to dry facts for the sake of it. I wanted to make sure the story was there. 
So in a way, it was almost maybe 13 or 14 short stories, and each stop was a story. And, I mean, you can go very deep when you start one, one issue in Lebanon. You can start with one topic and you end up in Ottoman history suddenly, mm-hmm. or you end up in an earthquake during the Roman Empire. I mean, it's very easy to, to jump in. So I, I, I jumped in <laughs> very deep. And uh, the end of the tour was a tribute to Samir Asir himself. I would end the tour um, at, at the garden near Martyrs Square. And you asked me to, uh, to share the quote yeah. So, so there. I'm actually. You know what? I know this is audio, but I think always with an audio podcast, isn't it nice to hear the background sound? <laughs> I love. I love doing that. So I'm going to take out one of the tickets. Uh, there's. It's actually two quotes, but the quote I think you're referring to is the one in Arabic. It's yeah. the one that he wrote uh, April, mid-April 2005. April 15, if I'm not mistaken. April 15. Which is which is just less than two months before he was killed. Exactly, less than two months, and it's the day the Syrian army is leaving Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So it's the Syrian withdrawal, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a long piece, but the the piece appeared in An Nahar. It's the last quote of that article, and it's Audu Now that quote has been used repeatedly during the recent protests. It reemerged because that quote is the only way forward. And he left us with that quote. And uh, if you'd like me to translate it, I mean, I think for people listening, they'll probably understand it, but I can translate it if you'd like. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. It, it's not go to the street, it's go back to the street, mm-hmm. return to the street. Because in 2005, Samir Asir knew it's not a matter of just one protest or one moment or one push. You need to keep going back to the street and make sure the job is done. And this is a reflection on the March 14 protests mm-hmm. that in his mind were already beginning to decay. That's mm-hmm. a month later. So in other words, go back to the street. Just because the Syrian army is leaving, it doesn't mean the internal mess is fixed. Now you have to get into the real dirty work. The second part I love, it says, Ayyuharrafaq. Now this to me is a play on words, and it's the it's the way he operated. Samir Asir, leftist uh, historian, a Syrian Palestinian Lebanese with a French citizen French passport, who could write in French and Arabic, live in uh, in Ashrafi, and spend all of his days in Hamra. The man was, I think, everything you would want in a historian. <laughs> he really was able to. Uh, he connected many dots, and he, I think, he is a reflection of all the identities of Beirut in one. And he used this this phrase, and I think he did it deliberately. It means two things. It means dear friends, and it also means dear comrades. Mm-hmm. So comrades, join him on the streets. Join Samir, protest, keep protesting. Friends, the wider public, all that are paying attention to what's happening. Show up. Go back to the streets, dear friends, dear comrades. And you would see him. You would you would know he was there. The last part, ta'udu illa al-waduh. It's a tricky one. It really means you'll return to clarity. Mm-hmm. But the clarity here, I think, is the, is the one thing that maybe he saw, or he foresaw that we would not get to the final point. In other words, the sovereignty of Lebanon. And he used the quote himself. 
Independence 2005. Mm -hmm. He helped deliver that quote in the months leading up to March 14 and after. He believed in it. He said that sovereignty of Lebanon matters. And ta'udu illa al-waduh, you'll return to clarity once you reestablish Lebanon's sovereignty. And it's not just cosmetic. It's not the Syrian army leaving. It means rebuilding Lebanon. And I think it also means, and he probably would have, I'm sure he meant it this way, a new social pact, a new arrangement between citizens and the state. So clarity is needed. And to get to clarity, you need to protest and to keep protesting and don't give up and push and push and push until this mess ends. And it's a beautiful quote. It's a short quote, but it's layered in history. Mm. That's what I like about him. He delivers a lot in, in one sentence. It's it's um, it feels surreal to to think about it today. Uh, well, now it's July second, so exactly a month ago I released the episode with uh, Ziad Majid. Yes. Who I know you interviewed him as well. And Ziad, for those who don't know, I mean I won't say much because that episode is long enough already. It's <laughs> uh, a good one though. <laughs> thank you. Was uh, friends with Samir Osir, uh, a comrade, uh, you know, uh, partner in crime kind of <laughs> situation, yeah. trying to build this movement together. And uh, as Samir sort of uh, predicted, I suppose, uh, then being exiled from Lebanon de facto in the case of Ziad at some point and uh, and so on. Anyway, people can, can listen to the episode. But I was thinking of... of uh, well, I regularly think of, of Samir Osir, to be honest. Uh, not, I mean, part of it is, you know, because he was assassinated. So there's always this dimension of when someone is murdered, we end up, or I mean, I will just speak for myself, but we end up going through, to their, you know, through their works. Sometimes I have discovered people uh, that I had never heard of before because they were killed. And uh, you will see the seg the segue actually works this way as well because <laughs> it's it this was also the case with your father, and I remember exactly where I was uh, that day. I was in Hamra. I was um, in a pub um, whose name I'm going I'm, I just forgot, but it's and it's on the main street. It's one of those small um, uh, alleyways uh, near the actual alleyway, but not there, and. I was with my friend Karim, and he was the bartender over there, and there was the TV, so we, we saw the news and everything, and he turned to me and he said, uh, they got one of, something along the lines of like, they got one of the last good ones, that's what he told me, and I, rem I remember this so well, because it's one of those quotes that, A, it's such a, like, it's such a striking thing to say, you know, and B, at the time, I didn't know who your father was, and this, this happened so many times in Lebanese history. And by Lebanese history, you know, I'm, I'm 29, so I'm biased of the past 30 years, essentially, you know. But this happened so many times. It's either something very bad happened, uh, an assassination in these cases, or something like, let's say, momentous, like in in politics. So I did not know who Michel Aoun was until Michel Aoun returned. returned. <laughs> or like in the, in the couple of months, you know, there was that period where um the Aouni, so his supporters and the Uwet, the supporters of Samir Jaja, were sort of fighting it out a lot with these ridiculous chants fighting each other and that, that kind of stuff. 
and I was in a school in a, in, a, in an area and environment where they were kind of the dominant two groups. And I just remember, I, I, I'm def I've definitely told the story already, but I remember one day uh, I was like, what, 2005, so I would have been 14. My, my mother picks me up from school. We go back home. It's very close to the school. And I ask her, uh, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I ask her, mom, are we with the Lebanese forces or are we with the, with the Aouniye? <laughs> and she stops the car and starts yelling at me with, with, with neither of these two. We don't, mamnet ata, as we say in Arabic, like we don't deal with these, which is amazing because it's the same expression, like mamnet ata, like we don't deal with drugs. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, that's how I would remember these names. And because I grew up in a specific, in a household where it was really taboo to talk about these things. It was taboo to talk about politics. Uh, our house was bombed uh, while my mom was pregnant with me uh, by the Syrian regime at the time. That was the whole war, quote unquote, war of liberation of Michelin yeah. at the time and whatnot. Yeah. And it uh, probably obviously it stuck and uh, when the reconstruction and everything you know there was this feeling whether rightly or wrongly but like we can forgive the generation that really had that hope in a sense that well this is going to be different this is going to be different um some of um i'm just gonna say like the parents generation some of them went one way and Reindoctrinating their children with some what we would in academia we call like sectarian historiography, so like a sectarian way of seeing the world, if you want, a sectarian interpretation of Lebanese history and regional history. Yeah. Others would take the other route, which was the case of my mother, and basically just not talk about it at all, like imposed amnesia essentially. Right. And this is where my uh, need, in a sense, to compensate for that. The, 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 my need for storytelling is, in one way, to compensate for the first roughly 15, 16, 17 years of my life, essentially. And I wanted to talk about uh, your father, and you know, feel free to talk as much as you can. I, I mean, this cannot be easy. I, I can say this, you know, uh, with near certainty, I'm assuming, but. Forget about the day itself. I mean, you can mention it if you want, but since then, how have you been trying to uh, share these stories? I know, for example, on the podcast that you've been sharing uh, his uh, interviews and, you know, lectures, I think. I think most of them are interviews, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, some of them in video format, others, you, I think you, you would put both in a video and audio format. Um, what is so? Let me ask it this way: Like, what is your intended purpose of sharing what he had to say? I'll. I mean, I'll start by saying that I think of him as a storyteller as well, mm -hmm. and I think if he he was able to paint the picture in a very uh, in a very eloquent and decent way, and the last months of his life, he was regularly on radio, TV, being interviewed in Lebanon, outside of Lebanon. And he was able to show the wider picture and maybe, uh, you know, the, the nitty-gritty details that people get side, maybe distracted with when it comes to Lebanon. Mm -hmm. I think he was able to dismiss those and show more, more and more what the core problems are and trying to get Lebanon out of its civil war state. And uh, I, when I started giving the tour, and before his assassination, mm -hmm. nobody knew 
that I was his son. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really mean that. And that, I, w- I mean, I was walking with 50, 60 people on the streets of Beirut. All these curious types would meet me. Some of them are politicians, security guards. Some are just, you know, people that want to sell something <laughs> to the group. I mean, I, I had a very odd group of friends <laughs> on the streets of Beirut. <laughs> None of them knew. None of them knew. And that also, I think, is part of the story, that my father did not like attention. He he preferred, I think he preferred sharing his thoughts in, in, the, in the most accessible way, but he didn't like the celebrity status, if you will, that would come automatically with Lebanese politicians. And I, I think he even hesitated with that word. He didn't like to be thought of as a, as a politician. And the mm-hmm. truth is, the truth is, he spent nine months in the Lebanese government. He was a minister of finance for nine months during the transition after Doha in 2008-2009. And I can say this because I these are words he shared with me. He never wanted to be a minister. <laughs> so I don't know how many Lebanese ministers would say that. Maybe there are, there are probably some that were reluctant in that post. But of the ones that I've seen on TV and, and before and after, not many. And he, uh, he just, his storytelling capabilities, I think, is was his main talent. Now he was not a writer per se. He was not mm-hmm. a, I mean, he, uh, he did, he did, share his thoughts on Lebanese politics. So that is what he's most known for. But I, I loved, I loved my anonymity, and I loved him as well. And I loved those. He came on the tour once. He just showed up in a in a in what he thought was a disguise. It was a <laughs> fr- very very like cheap French beret <laughs> and uh, a leather jacket. He looked more like a criminal than anything. <laughs> he looked. I was actually concerned. Who is this weird guy walking with us? It's him. And he once once he actually got to see what I do, and I, I loved that moment. I and. It's very special for me because I always wanted him to feel comfortable walking with me on the streets of Beirut. And that became increasingly difficult as the years went by. But there was a moment that he just literally, he showed up and surprised me. Um, Since his assassination, I think my life's work, if you want to, without sounding too romantic here, but everything I do in life is a reminder of him. Mm. And it's in, in everything I do. The tour, I stopped it for a few years. And I couldn't handle being known in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Something that I was never used to, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the attention. I, I didn't like uh, being... I didn't like the pity that comes with, uh, with that kind of incident, that kind of tragedy. I didn't like it. Yeah. So I ran away actually ran away to, of all places, I ran to Scotland. <laughs> I thought, yeah, this we is almost a, met there. It's, actually, it's kind of, it's, it's appropriate to, my curiosity to podcast, the podcast world, you are still, I think, homeless for thought. Mm-hmm. You still have, yeah. So I, I remember when you sent me an email, I kind of quickly came onto the podcast. So I, we maybe communicated maybe four years ago or so, yeah. three or four yeah, years yeah. ago. Yeah, three years, yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, I, I thought I'd run away and try to try to figure things out without being stuck 
with very, very difficult thoughts in Lebanon. And I, I left for a few years. And I didn't set foot in, in Beirut. I actually did not come back. It took a how while. Long, for, uh, how long was the longest? Uh, almost four years. Wow. Almost four years, yeah. The, when I returned, I, uh, you know, it's, what's crazy about Lebanon, and everyone, I think, has this feeling, even the worst tragedy, even if it's the most personal one, over time, you still love Lebanon. Mm. I completely just, it's, I only thought of the good. And when I returned, I returned deeply missing and loving Lebanon. And there are many friends of mine that said, if anyone has the right not to return, it's you. And, you know, you're maybe, but it's not that. It's, I still love Lebanon. And I returned and I thought, you know what? There's an internship starting in his name. They need funds. They need money. Let me do the tour one time and let me try to raise money through donations for this internship. And I thought literally I would do it once, just a one-off. Uh, that one time turned into <laughs> about six months <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't realize that the moment I would start doing it again, there would be people waiting. And I had, I mean, I, I'm not trying to, not trying to, uh, this is not said from ego, on the contrary. I got hundreds of emails within hours just saying the tour is back. And to me, I, it's like, it's felt so good reconnecting with something I used to love doing regularly. It felt so good. And it also felt that it was the moment to try to share my father's story on the tour. And I deliberately decided to end the tour with Samir Asir, like I did before. There was no reason to stop doing that. But in the build-up towards his stop, I wrote a eulogy uh, of Martyrs Square, and I included his assassination in that eulogy. Mm. And uh, I thought maybe I would share it. And it's an, it's an ode to Beirut, and it's told in second-person narrative. So I'm literally talking to Martyrs Square, where my father is buried. Mm -hmm. and. I ended up sharing it as an episode on the podcast as well. Um, it's the episode 100, al British. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to make sure I did not avoid that topic. At the same time, didn't want that assassination to become the tour. I still wanted Beirut to shine in its own right, just at the same time acknowledging a very personal loss. That's now part of the story. And I found a way to do it without it, without it hurting too much. It, it took a few tries to kind of make sure I could do it in front of, you know, 50 people. It's not easy to kind of open up ad hoc <laughs> and start spilling your heart out. But I, I found a way that would not distract from the city's story. And uh, I thought, what better way to acknowledge that loss than in the heart of the city, in Martyrs Square, right where he's buried, and now, right where we're seeing history unfold once again. Mm -hmm. So, to me, it was too too poetic to turn down. <laughs> and I, I honestly, I I only stopped doing it uh, again because Martyr Square is alive at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's no need to, you know, 
try to explain it. It's 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 there. You want to see it? You go. And also the, uh, I, it's not maybe it's not the right time right now to try to give the good and the bad. I think it, it, there, we need to wait a bit because things are too, things are too things are moving too quickly. It's not just about COVID. It's it's about what we're seeing on the streets of Beirut. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. I think it would distract to try to bring a big audience and try to kind of. Uh, I think it would feel a, a little phony. So I'm I'm not doing the tour right now, but uh, instead putting all my energy uh, into the podcast. Mm. It reminds me of um, Zena Hashem, who was a recent guest of mine. She's a Lebanese poet. Yes. And yeah. She mentioned that she was unable, and she still is unable, to put the revolution in a poem. And um, I've I've experienced something similar. I uh, part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast is also because I had uh, I have been having difficulties writing it down. I I was there was a period between uh, roughly October and like January February was uh, I was writing you know fairly frequently uh, long form essays or like shorter stuff or whatnot and then i sort of had to take a break uh, back when uh it felt like the, the entire like so much was so much was being on pause as well due to the due, due to the pandemic um but like i have i have never been out of lebanon for too long um four years that you mentioned that has never happened to me the the longest I think I've ever been out of Lebanon was like maybe four months, and wow, that's uh, besides actually the exception being right now due to the pandemic and the right, situation right. Mm-hmm. is I came here I came, I'm in Switzerland now doing my studies I came here in January so I've been here since then, and um, due to everything that's going on and other things uh, back home in Lebanon, I may not go back before Christmas, uh, if then. We'll we'll see what happens by then, obviously. Uh, Which would mean almost a year without being in Lebanon, which is very weird to me. I have never not been a summer, like all of my summers were in Lebanon. And if they were not, it's been because I had some trip somewhere else. And but that was because I was still living in Lebanon. So I was going back to Lebanon. And the notion that I may one day be a um, migrant or diaspora or, yeah. you know, all of these words uh, is very, it sits very, very uncomfortably with me. I have nothing against these words. And there are many people who uh, it's like feel comfortable with these categories. And, you know, that's, that's good on them. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with moving from one place to another and making another place home. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that for me, there's something that has always sort of sat a bit uncomfortably. And I, I still don't know why. So it's, it's, you know, still on an ongoing process of trying to figure out why. Part of, part of the reason, I think, is because there's so many, there are multiple identities in my family that Lebanon was actually the the um, the thing that brought all of these identities together. So mm. uh, Palestinian, Italian, Argentinian, French, Swiss, um, all of my families are kind of like, you know, like many Lebanese, of course, you know, a bit everywhere. In my cases, it's in my case, sorry, it's not just um, like, you know, second, third generation Lebanese who went to Argentina, then came back and, and so on. It's 
multi, like one my grandmother's Italian, her husband who passed away recently was Palestinian, and so on and so forth. And so I had to I kind of grew up with that and not really knowing what to do with it other than through the lens of well I'm still Lebanese first. That was the that that's what it was growing up. And you know, later on in my twenties, whatnot, at some point I started accepting these identities a bit more. So I, I started welcoming, if you want, complexity much more than I did growing up. Growing up, it was just no questions asked. I'm Lebanese and that's it. There's no big deal about it, but that's it. I didn't really make too much of a fuss or over the fact that I have a Palestinian grandfather, which right. of course is a big deal in Lebanon. And it's something that um, I later understood that this was a big deal and it had to be talked about. You, can, you shouldn't be hiding it because it would be easier. It's easier to hide it. For for uh, for the reasons that we all know, because in Lebanon it's very difficult to be Palestinian, and it's you know that is why among other reasons I, I had I had felt this connection with Samir Asir. His multiple identities, um, choosing to speak as Lebanese without renouncing his Palestinianness or his Syrianness, right. this is something that I have found very appealing, and like just very uncommon, you know, like at at best. In my experience, you know, from what I've seen, at best, we might have uh, people who identify as Lebanese Americans, Lebanese French, Lebanese, uh, usually a Western um, nationality or maybe Latin American nationality uh, or maybe even West African in some cases as well. And that would that would be a different kind of dynamic, not that one is better than the other. But it would be a different kind of dynamic that didn't really need much explanation in Lebanon. So if you're like half Lebanese, half Dutch, no one is really gonna give you shit for it in Lebanon. <laughs> Whereas if you if you have a Palestinian uh, uh, parent and the other parent is Syrian, as was the as was the case with with Samir Asir, then that had to matter somehow. And I think the way he what he did with that, because you know you can do with multiple identities, you can you can take them in different ways. You can erase them. You can, you know, my, my grandfather, the Palestinian, actually erased his Palestinian identity. He just called himself Lebanese. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can do something with them, which is what Samir Asir tried to do. He kept on being active with the Palestinian cause. He kept on being active with the Syrian cause against the Assad regime, while also being active with the Lebanese cause. And it's that trifecta, if you want, that, that, that the fact that he was able to do all three at the same time, that I have personally found... Um, very appealing. It doesn't mean that I romanticize uh, the man. He was uh, a great intellectual writer uh, whose time came too soon, and that's just what it is. He did not. He did not have to be a martyr. You know, like he did not have to die for something greater to happen. It just happened, and it's horrible that it happened. And I'm trying to learn. Uh, from what he had to say and maybe even disagree with him on some things. It hasn't happened yet, amazingly, but I'm sure if I dig deep enough, <laughs> there will be some things that I disagree with because, like, why not? At some point, you know, disagreements are not necessarily a bad thing. So, so I was rambling a bit, but... No, on the uh, contrary. I, I mean, a lot of what you said resonates with me and, and the way I read him. I mean, it's... I, I, I'll add only one thing. I think you your own story, mm-hmm. your own multi-layered family, and mm-hmm. it's not like... I mean, the Palestinian part is not, if, if anything, Lebanese Dutch should be more bizarre than Lebanese Palestinian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, it's it's literally just a few kilometers 
away uh-huh. and it's not like you're searching for something so fantastical it's it's palestine it's literally next door so that that the fact that being being palestinian has so much weight on it i i think and the way i read samir asir the way i read people that the way i read any any historian who's able to uh give the sort of the wider lens is that regional wars in particular in our neighborhood it forced identities on us yes yeah and this is something that i think is beyond any person's control a Palestinian becomes something more than a Palestinian. Uh, even even the word Lebanese becomes controversial. Syrian today has its own weight, and every country in our neighborhood, but in particular the neighboring countries, I think it it really it didn't just tear us apart. It made us into things that we weren't. And I read his books that way. And and also to take it one step further not just regional war, but civil war, I think is what forced people like you and me and the generation before us and even the generation before that one, and maybe the current one as well, to abandon the country. Not because we don't love Lebanon, it's because we can't survive any longer in Lebanon. And I completely agree with you, I don't like the term diaspora. It's not something that I would judge upon anyone else, but for me, I don't want to feel disconnected. On, on the contrary, I, I don't really want to move on from the country. I actually want to be fully entrenched in everything that happens. And I think we never moved from the civil war. Yeah. And I, I'm going to say this in a very broad way. It's not that we didn't move from 15 years of fighting. We did. The guns, for the most part, the guns fell silent. Mm-hmm. For the most part, not all. But for the yeah, most part, for the most part, <laughs> yeah, m- most militiamen that fought in the civil war, most of them, went home. Mm-hmm. But that's not how you end a civil war. Civil war, I mean, it takes a lot of work to take a country from civil war to something better. Somehow, we managed to take the country to something worse, mm-hmm. and that is what killed the people like Samir Asir. And I, I'm saying this in a very broad sense. Mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. what also I and I would add my father to that story. And I would add any 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 warlike tragedy following the civil war is I think inappropriately described because it is still the civil war. And I think that is the challenge Samir Asir left us with. Mm-hmm. I think he wanted us to literally move on from the civil war. In 2020, 30 years since Taif, 31 years since Taif we are still dealing with civil war issues. Yes. And that, I think, will always plague us with the identity problems that will always give us excuses not to try harder, that will also maybe give us reasons to blame certain groups. And I think that is the ultimate tragedy. That's why my Arabic is not perfect. That's why my Lebanese dialect is not perfect. I grew up in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as a kid. Not because my parents wanted to run away from the country. On the contrary. My parents actually stuck it out until things got too violent, and then they left. And many people like them, and hundreds of thousands of Lebanese, and some, we have millions in the diaspora that just felt that they couldn't survive at home. But I think very few were eager to run away. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part, for the most part. They left knowing that things were too difficult, but they didn't leave because they really wanted to leave. And unfortunately, those that stayed and tried to move the country beyond civil war era 
they ultimately were killed. If they were not killed, they ran away out of fear. Mm -hmm. And we know some of these people that they just, mm -hmm. they had to leave out of concern for their own family. Uh, they, they, they ran away. That's not uh, how you. That's not how you transition a country from civil war to something better. So that's that's the core issue, and I and the episodes you you mentioned, um, I, I try every now and then I will reread a a blog post that my father uh, wrote, and mm. I didn't even I wasn't really aware that he was writing these things, and to be honest I don't think anyone knew. <laughs> he just would go on <laughs> on Blogspot and he was having these. Uh, I mean, some of them are tantrums, you know, they're not like, they're, they're just, they're all in draft form and there's mistakes in them. I think he probably was up at four in the morning and just maybe writing something and would just, you know, close his laptop. I, I think it was at that level, but, but there are some, some blogs and I think they really, they expand in a very different way. They expand on Samir Asir's own thought process mm. and I reread them and I share them on the podcast now and then. And they all harken back to the core issues that we have not solved. And I think they're as they're more pressing today than they were 10 years ago. And the longer we ignore them, the, the higher the chances are that the Lebanon we know will not be with us much longer. So I, uh, I do my best in my limited capacity to share those those words whenever possible. You know, I um, I'm here because I'm studying Lebanon. It's a bit of a paradox. <laughs> but my PhD is on post-war Lebanon, specifically Lebanese cinema. And it's it's more it's not about cinema itself, it's more like the themes that are discussed in cinema. And so I, I start analyzing the themes. And what's extraordinary to me is that some of the things that we, we are seeing today expressed, uh, like the anxieties that people are expressing online in Arabic, in English, some in French, um, some of these were already sort of manifested in movies before. Mm. The fear of, I believe it's still my cover photo right now. I keep on changing it, but I think it's, uh, if, if it is that cover photo, it's from, it's from a scene from Waves 98 by Elie Derer, uh, which is this uh, short film. Mm -hmm. And uh, he released it just a few months before the 2015 uh, movement, the You Think movement, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And anyway, in, in that, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intergenerational trauma, if you want, uh, being played out in, it's about 18 minutes, I think, or something like that. And there's a scene where he says, I don't want to end up like them. Like them. Right. And yeah. he's talking about his parents, who in the, in, the, in the short film, you see them sort of sitting in front of the TV, just watching the news and sort of like, as we've come to associate many, many of that generation, unfortunately, usually... Uh, I mean, because they have survived the war. And so there's a lot of um, trauma that has not been dealt with, among other things. And other things like we're all going to leave. Lebanon is going to drown in trash, which was obviously the theme of 2015. But that now it's like it's going to drown in everything else. And the politicians are going to leave as soon as the airport opens with the monies and everything. That's that's basically the plot of another short movie called Submarine. Mm. Uh, in which Lebanon is basically dead, like disease has taken over and people are trying to leave by boat because politicians have already escaped uh, uh, by plane or helicopters or whatnot. Anyway, so the, the, the point is that we have these post-war films, you know, I just listed two. I, I look at roughly 20 or so of them. Mm -hmm. um, 
and these films talk about themes that if this was the post-war, if this was really something that was post a war, okay, you will have some things that are unresolved. You know, you will have some tensions here and there. No, probably no peace will ever be perfect. But you wouldn't have every single symptom that created the war in the first place or that was developed during the war. You wouldn't have them again in the, in the post-war and also sometimes even worse than during the civil war. And Exactly. Yeah. This this is why the, the the concept of Lebanon being a post-war society is actually a bit misleading. Mm-hmm. We just uh, they just as you said they the the guns fell silent for the most part they don't shoot at each other that's a good thing I don't want them to start shooting at each other it's not a good thing if they start doing that uh, but that doesn't mean that the civil war mentality or the civil war frame framework. That doesn't mean that that has ended. And that is really the problem. And so I end up worried a lot that these hauntings, essentially, and haunting is a very, very overwhelming uh, um, symbol in many post-war Lebanese films. Uh, I'm using post-war in quotation, of course. That just keeps on coming back and back. So all of these questions, uh, the issue of the waste crisis in 2015, the ongoing corruption, the post-October development, the hyperinflation now that we're witnessing of like we're losing, even losing track of how things, it's just deteriorating in such a pace. And I'm here sitting here in Switzerland, (laughs) looking at all of this, trying to speak to my mom and grandmother and some friends here and there as much as I can, of course. But there's something very, very odd about this moment right now. I want to add something here, Joey, and I'm glad, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, this haunting visual mm-hmm. of every of these kinds of we my, my memory of Lebanon during the civil war is Tripoli in the 1980s mm-hmm. and Tripoli for the most part and I'm I'm I mean I was a boy 7 8 years old visiting from the states unable to get to Tripoli from Beirut so this is Khatames this is divided Lebanon We'd have to fly to Syria, to Damascus, and then take a very, very long taxi journey to Tripoli, mm-hmm. only to see relatives. But I'm I'm younger. These are not very clear memories, but I do remember a city where, for the most part, the civil war had ended. Uh, people would go to the beach. Um, there were checkpoints. There were many checkpoints. On occasion, you would hear gunshots in the background. But for the most part, life was manageable. And this is during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You had power outages regularly, maybe four to eight hours of electricity a day, maybe less. People had generators. Restaurants were open. Cafes were open. People were using the lira. But I used to have these giant wads of lira. This is before the this is before the Khamsmiya was printed as a note. So the yeah. largest note was still the Miten Khamsin. And people, uh, sorry, two or fifty, and you, you, people would still use the fifty and the hundred as notes. So I, I do remember having wads of fifties and hundreds and two fifties. But you know what? I, I can't really find a major difference than thirty-five years ago, than today. Mm-hmm. Hyperinflation. Uh, economy is unmanageable. There's really no state. There's no gunshots yet for the this is a good thing mm-hmm. the, there's no fighting in that sense 
but the streets are dark at night. There's no money. People are still managing, somehow managing. It's a dark chapter, but it's not that long ago that Lebanon was in the same state. So I really think uh, post-war conversations belong to Bosnia, they belong to Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. uh, they belong to countries that emerged from conflict and now are in a very fundamental different place. The Lebanon I know is one that cannot, for, for very specific reasons, cannot address basic issues. When you said trash and corruption and all the things that people are protesting about, things that decent people want to end, they don't want to live in this abnormal environment any longer. I think those well, those well-earned rights, these basic services that Lebanese deserve today, they deserve it. They're not able to get the basics. And I, I think, I might be in the minority here, I think a root cause that stems from the civil war is not being addressed. Otherwise, I see this as perpetual. You'll have waves of relative calm. You'll have the 1990s again. You'll have the 2000s. You'll have whatever we've had since 1989. And you'll also have distress. You'll have collapse. You'll have hunger. You'll have all of the above. And Samir Asir, going back to him, there's another quote that he... uh, that's also on the ledge next to his statue. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's a quote in French, so I'm going to torture you with my, <laughs> with my French. Okay? This is going to sound horrible, so anyone who's listening, yeah, close. <laughs> Beirut extraverti dans sa prospérité, la ville est encore dans sa ruine. Mm-hmm. Now, aside from me butchering that, it's, it's basically, it's a, it's a quote on a, on a, there's a duality. Uh-huh. There's a duality that lives in Beirut today. It's on more on one side than the other right now, but it goes back and forth. It's a cycle. It starts off by saying Beirut is extraordinary. It's extroverted in its prosperity. And that is true. When things are fairly calm in Lebanon, when Beirut is relatively manageable, relatively, mm-hmm. the city shines. And we have a lot to be proud of. A city that is is outward in its in its wealth and its wealth is is in history it's in culture it's in many things it's in the arts it's in everything you would want in a country to celebrate in its diversity everything but we are as extraordinary as outward in our decay in our ruins we are able to do both quite well i think his life mission was to break the cycle and stop falling apart every so often. And I, I, I read that quote as something that he also left us with, which is this book, which is everything he wrote about. Look at the reasons why this country is ungovernable right now. Don't be afraid to confront the biggest challenges, the challenge that cost him his life, mm-hmm. the challenge that robbed us from his words, and we're not looking at it directly. And I... I Part of the reason I focus in on this issue on the podcast is because I really, this is from humble perspective, my own limited means, it's my view, and I, I, I know it not maybe it's not a very popular one. Talk about the civil war. Talk about the civil war. Talk about the one group today that is still behaving like it's in the civil war. Mm-hmm. 
don't be shy about it. Actually, there's no reason to be shy because that group is now not only keeping the regime intact, <laughs> mm -hmm. it is also uh, the most unscathed from what we've seen the last 30 years. So talk about it. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid to address that issue. And don't let don't let the uh, the fear mongers convince you otherwise. And that's something I, I think is fundamental. Otherwise, we're I think we're going to be stuck for a long time in this cycle. Yeah, I I the well that group is Hezbollah obviously, and that yeah. um, I came to Hezbollah. So I'll I'll share some some background. Uh, which I think I have I haven't mentioned before. I'm not. I actually don't remember. But I used to support Hezbollah. I used to be a supporter until uh, well, it started dying out around 2008. I wouldn't say that my politics back then were were terribly sophisticated, to be honest. But there was this instinctual when, when, thing. When, when you're 17, you're allowed to have these. <laughs> 17 year olds are allowed to think whatever they want. <laughs> Oh man, I, I've met lots of much, much smarter 17-year-olds these days. But anyway, um, so there, there was this as my background, and that uh, died out in 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 the context of the Arab Spring. Obviously, um, I supported the uprisings. In the beginning, Hezbollah supported some of them. It supported the one in Egypt, Tunisia, and even the one in Libya, which people tend to like to forget about today. Yeah. Um, but of course, when it came to Syria, that's when the state of exception started. And at some point, at the beginning, I wasn't um, on board necessarily, as in like I wasn't denouncing them immediately. I wasn't. Um, I was, you know, I was still undergrad. I finished my undergrad studies in 2013. But it's in 2013 and then 2014, especially 15. And this bit I have talked, I have mentioned this before that I started meeting lots of Syrian activists and Syrian groups when I moved to London in 2015. That's why I met the exiles and refugees. And then it became this um, retrospective thing. So by leaving, quote unquote, Lebanon temporarily, at least to do my studies, it's when I started seeing these things from, from a different framework, from a different view. And there was a stark, stark contrast between the group that I thought uh, I knew and the group that I ended up hearing about from the people who were experiencing it firsthand. And this is something that I feel even some of my best, like most well-meaning um, colleagues and friends and people who are activists uh, on the left, uh, not everyone, not everyone, but a lot of them, too many, I would say, uh, I think we're still in denial about the fact that there is something fundamentally different about this party. And even if they are of the mindset of not thinking about Lebanon, like even if they want to say it's all of the parties are equal, equally bad, fine. That's one thing. Let's let's talk about this. Fine. Let's talk about that. But there is one party and only one party uh, that is in Syria. There's one party that constantly praises the Iranian regime. And this is something that is not, it doesn't square with what are supposed to be our values. And for the most of us, we know what happened in the 80s. We know who started assassinating the intellectuals of the South. We know these stories. And I mean, maybe not everyone knows this. More people should, for sure. 
and I mean, I'll plug in like the Ziad Majid episode does go does go into that um, to to a different extent. But then what what ended up happening is that for me, when October came around, and let's switch now a bit to the October uprising, uh, because it's kind of like the elephant in the room. We didn't mention it as much now, but just I know that's just because I I talk about it a lot on my podcast and you do as well on yours. Sure. From the very first few days. Uh, when Nasrallah himself, I think it was like a Saturday or something, he he came on and said like this uh, government is not gonna fall, this era is not gonna fall, whatnot. And then he ended up making like what five, six, I don't know, speeches in uh, one every other week. There was that period of time in the first two three weeks where basically all of them were talking. <laughs> every every yeah. other day, someone was giving a speech, and I I I I had this you know I felt this weight in me that I knew this party so well right now, but not for Lebanon-related reasons. I knew them so well because, well, by 2019, I was deeply uh, embedded in Syrian activist circles, uh, mostly in exile, some of them in Lebanon, but mostly in exile. Uh, Well, Lebanon technically would be in exile as well, I suppose. And I just had this sinking feeling that we were not, we we were, we were not talking about it as much as, and you can feel it. You could feel it on the streets. You could say Nabih Beri's name. You could say Jabran Basir's name. You can say Michelon. You can say Samir Jaja. You can say Hariri. You can say Jumblat. You can, I'm forgetting someone. You can say all of these big names. But as soon as you mention his name, as soon as you say Hassan Nasrallah, that's when you kind of feel yeah, like you have to look around you. Yeah. And I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. I saw the activists chanting. And I saw them before they would end up saying his name in this chance, Yalla Ikhal Mishran, Yalla Ikhal Nasrallah, Yalla Ikhal, and so on. I, I could, you could feel it. The tension comes up, and now that everyone has to be on guard. And sometimes you have these moments of people, uh, as we say, like they kind of let it all out, and that's when you feel the, the bravery come in, in a sense. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't last long, for the most part, because it's so difficult. And... As Ziyad, and I'll let you uh, comment and, and continue, but as Ziad mentioned, I think he mentioned it on both of the mine and your episode uh, podcast, that Hezbollah is the it's basically the elephant in the room in Lebanon. And it's both a party that is extremely difficult to work with, but it's a party that at the same time we have to uh, we have to do something about, we have to understand, we have to tackle. I don't want the violent way, and I think we it's not the right way, and we would definitely lose in any case. Mm-hmm. But I don't and I don't I don't believe that that is the way in any case because I don't believe that the majority of people who belong to Hezbollah are necessarily bad people. Mm-hmm. But as in like the lower classes, let's say, not not the people at the top. But at the same time, there has to be more bravery on our side. We have to say that even if you support the party, we have to talk about the politicians. We have to talk about the party's policies. We have to talk about the party's priorities. And this discussion is extremely difficult to have. I've tried it many times. I've tried it after being punched myself. I've tried, I've seen others try it much more, like in much more frequently than I have. I had given up at some point. And yet it should continue. I don't believe it's hopeless. I don't believe anything is ever hopeless. Although I know right now specifically, it's a very odd thing to say given that uh, given what's happening. So anyway, so I've been rambling on again, but go on. 
No, on the contrary, these rambles are actually what gets me thinking. So I'm glad. I'm glad <laughs> the rambling actually helps me uh, sort of think a bit. And I, I mean, this is something that came across my mind because you mentioned you were you were born during the one of the most violent chapters, the Civil War, the hundred. I mean, the late 1980s was a very violent episode, mm-hmm. and it, in a way, it became so violent that you had Christian refugees coming into West Beirut seeking mm-hmm. refuge. And this was an unusual thing for Ashrafi to turn to Hamra for for safe for for life. Yes. So there's a, I I can imagine 1989. Um, maybe you're living, I don't know, somewhere in Kisirwan, and you want to speak your mind about Samir Jaja. Mm-hmm. I think you would think twice. You'd think yes. maybe 20 times. You actually you'd be so afraid you wouldn't want to say anything about Samir Jaja. Yeah. That's 1989. So you have a, 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 a militia man, a warlord, a man born out of civil war. He's Bashir Jmeyer's protege. He, he runs a militia that runs part of Lebanon. This is a warlike leader. You're afraid of saying his name. No one is afraid of saying Samir Jaja's name today. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in Ipsharri, whether it's in Beirut, whether it's anywhere, from any corner of Lebanon, you can say Samir Jaja's name, nobody is going to threaten you. And if they do, if they do, and it might happen, it's because probably you found those few people that are going to do it, and they're going to make your life miserable, but the numbers are small, and they're not the majority. It's because we don't think of Samir Jaja the way we did in 1989. Hassan Nasrallah today, we think of him the way we think of Jaja in 1989, or maybe Jumblat Bashuf in the 1980s, or Birri for that matter, in parts of Beirut. There's a fear. That's a civil war fear. And I'm going to maybe step back a bit. In, mm-hmm. in 2000, actually, let's go even earlier, in the 1990s, late 90s. Uh, it's something I've never really shared publicly, but uh, 19, 1999, Early 2000, uh, the Israelis are are letting it be known that they're going to withdraw from the south. Yeah, it didn't happen just literally within hours. I mean, there was there was they were openly posturing at their withdrawal in the lead up to I think it was in May of 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. Yeah, May. So right in May of 2000, right? Because we just had the 20 year yeah, uh, exactly. anniversary. Yeah, but. The months leading up to May, there were whispers about the Israelis pulling out. I was living at the embassy in Washington, Lebanese embassy in uh, in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. My father was the ambassador at the time, and you probably enjoy this. The Syrian ambassador to Washington back then was Walid Maalim. He was the Syrian ambassador to Washington, and he would show up at the Lebanese embassy. And the Syrians were always trying to put people in the embassy. And it's not just Syrian regime figures. It was Lebanese working with the Syrians in Lebanon, mm-hmm. trying to put friendly voices in the embassy. Or if not friendly voices, uh, let's say maybe uh, their own type of intelligence where they would know if the people in the embassy were doing things without their sort of, uh, without their consent. The mm-hmm. big problem back then for them was, uh, the Syri- the, was the Israelis were leaving. Yeah. They were afraid. They were really afraid that once the Israelis leave Lebanon, they would lose power over Lebanon. And in a way, if you think about it, 
this anti-Israel regime, this regime that champions Palestinian rights, or so they claim, this regime that is sort of the proud savior of, of all things Arab, mm -hmm. this horrible group of thugs next door mm -hmm. that brainwashed way too many of us in, into believing these things, they're the ones that are afraid when the Israelis leave, they'll lose their leverage in Lebanon. Yeah. And by leverage, it was really that Hezbollah, over time, would eventually fill in what they lost. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah would gain what the Syrians lost. And in a way, the Syrians, were, they were right. Their, their leverage would diminish. But by 2000, there's not one Syrian, there's, there's basically, there's not one Israeli soldier left in the south. Mm -hmm. There's not one Lebanese soldier in the south. Mm -hmm. There's not one Syrian soldier in the south. Instead, there's Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. Why would a state purposely prevent its own sovereign army from entering the south? It makes no sense. It doesn't add up whatever the justification. The fact the Lebanese army did not set foot into the south until 2006 meant only that Hezbollah was beginning to take over the role the Syrians played in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, in those years, it became clearer and clearer that any sympathy one has for this group fighting Israelis in the South, or for that matter, any anyone with maybe, they would tolerate that kind of group because of the Israeli presence in the South and that proxy militia, the South Lebanese army in the South, that there was, in a way, some justification you could play with. Some, maybe. But by 2000, and obviously by 2006, it was clear that this group was not ready to join the rest of the groups in the post-war era. It was very clear. They would, they would not tolerate that kind of uh, transition that every other group played in Lebanon. And I'm not saying the other groups are good. It's not like uh, that's the model necessarily. But they were unwilling to help and contribute to rebuilding the state on the contrary it's the state will be left to do a few things but we Hezbollah have very clear lines and their security of the country and their Lebanon's foreign policy what happened since 2006 and now we're seeing it happen on the streets of Beirut we're seeing it happen in politics of Lebanon we're seeing it all over the country they're now saving the regime they've become that powerful so I think one has to look at Hezbollah today, not in the sensitive, uh, we, can't, we can't criticize them because, because they helped liberate the South. Or for that matter, Hassan Nasrallah is untouchable. You, can't, you can't, can't criticize him because he is too pure and too whatever. Mm -hmm. You can't have that in Lebanon. You cannot tolerate one group's determination to hijack a country's sovereignty and to play by civil war rules and at the same time expect for decency and reform and accountability that just doesn't add up, just doesn't add up. Northern Ireland, I think very few people will uh, look to the IRA today as the answer for their problems. Yeah. They tolerate Sinn Féin, the political evolution of the IRA. There's been no political evolution to Hezbollah. The sideshow that you referenced earlier the few at the top that kind of do the politics that we know, mm -hmm. they're as imperfect as any other Lebanese politician. They're as imperfect and they're as uh, they're as problematic. But it's mm -hmm. not a 
party that evolved into that. That's just the sideshow. Hezbollah now secures regimes next door. If anything, it's it's one big reason why you still have the same regime next door. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I I think the moment it becomes difficult to talk about that group and the power they wield in Lebanon, I think uh, you, the revolution is lost. And that's my frustration really with people that maybe are inclined to only talk about economy and ignore them. Because if you ignore them, you'll have no economy. <laughs> you really have nothing to you have nothing to work with. Yeah. That, that was my ramble, so I apologize for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, I agree with that, of course. It is, it is a very difficult thing to talk about. And it's even more difficult. I mean, listen, it's one thing for the both of us to say it's difficult. Uh, but it's even more difficult for very close friends who can't even be on my podcast, uh, even though I've asked them many times, because they still live in the south or they still live in, in Dahiye uh, or in Deba'a. And they are they can be vocal online, usually anonymously, uh, but it's it's they would not be comfortable talking about it or using their own voices because uh, people would recognize them. Yeah. And this is not normal. This is this this right there, just that in itself, yeah. is not normal. And I need my friends who I trust. And by here I'm using friends like in a as big of a tent as possible. People I admire and respect and who I think anyway, uh, like is vice versa, is reciprocal, I mean, um, to start thinking about this specific topic in a much broader sense. And the way I would do it, and this would be my advice, is look at it through a Syrian lens. Get out of the Lebanon box for a sec. Mm -hmm. I know it's very difficult for the Lebanese to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Very difficult to think about uh even our neighbors uh, uh even though like we basically have to they're very powerful uh historically anyway um start looking at these stories and there are many of them very easy to find online syrians have been talking about this for nine years now this is a long time uh, with hezbollah specifically with eight years uh since 2012 more or less and especially since 2013. look at these stories look at what they have to say and try and square that with the party that is presenting itself in the Lebanese context, that is presenting itself to you when it talks to you as the Lebanese, mm-hmm. compared to when, uh, well, metaphorically, they don't actually talk to Syrians, mm-hmm. but metaphorically, how do they how they act, act towards uh, anti-Assad Syrians, of course. And look at the contrast, because that for me is what really pushed me, in a sense, to be less hesitant and worried. I'm still worried a lot. I still sometimes mind my words. I have family in Dahiya, so you know I have to I have to take these things into consideration. But for the most part, I still I say I say what's on my mind. And the reason why that happened is um, just Syrians, Syrian activists who you know because when I started comparing and contrasting what they have had to go through with what I have had to go through, which was is relatively nothing. Um, that's when like I kind of got their bravery in a sense, rather than just developing my own. So this is what I would recommend, really. I am very, very frustrated, and I know that you already know this. I'm continuously and perpetually frustrated by how little uh, most Lebanese engage with Syria, uh, yeah. as just from an activist perspective. There are lots of missed opportunities since 2011, in my opinion. Uh, 
Mm. Um, but perhaps that's a discussion for another time. What I wanted to um, semi-end on, and, you know, this can be a slow ending, but what would, besides the sovereignty um, issue, which, you know, we've talked about this, and I don't think there's more to say on that, how would you see Lebanon, or no, let me ask it in a different way. Uh, the ongoing crisis in Lebanon is very, very difficult to think about, and I'm sure even much more difficult to actually experience, as in if I was physically in Lebanon. I'm still experiencing it, and so are you, in the sense that we have family and friends back home, of course. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, the, uh, different calculations um, are made, in a sense. What do you do with that reality, you personally? It doesn't have to be a perfect answer. How do you deal with that reality yourself? I'll start with the uh, maybe the heavier end of the answer, and then I'll move to the lighter. Okay. I, I, the last 24 hours, I think, are indicative of what to expect, so long as we have the same situation. When I look at the... Uh, maybe the suggestions that Hadidi will return uh-huh. or that someone close to him will be brought in. I see I see two options. It's either somebody like Hassan Dieb, who is more in line with what maybe Hezbollah would want mm-hmm. in Lebanon, or Saad Hadidi, who's nominally less in line, but at best serves as a hostage and at worst plays the dirty game that we don't want to play any longer in Lebanon. Both options are bad. And I, I still believe the Killon Yani Killon slogan is at the core of any 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 discussion that there should be no preference to a Hadidi who's brought back as if October 16 is the goal and that we're going to go back to where we were in October 16. No one in their right mind would want that. That's what that's what October 17 was all about. Mm-hmm. So that's my immediate frustration is seeing a good chance that October 16 is now the goal for the regime. That's the more pressing, maybe the more disappointing thing. Is that what what exactly are the last eight months about? Mm-hmm. The other stuff, the lira. I mean, is it 10,000 today? It's upwards. 9,000, almost 9,000. Uh, I mean, people, it's, I mean, I, aside from the horrible images that we see online, on TV and whatever, even, even private conversations with friends and the, the, maybe the deep disillusionment and this kind of despair, yeah. uh, it, it really, I mean, I, I don't want to encourage anyone to leave Lebanon, but at the same time, I can't blame anyone who's able to leave and can't sort of put them, make them feel that they should stay for any reason. It's, uh, it, would be, it would be unfair to say, no, you just wait it out because there's not, uh, in the short term, I don't think anything positive will emerge. Mm-hmm. And I say this, I know it's maybe tunnel vision, maybe it's too, de- maybe it's too depressing, but uh, I just... I don't think the big challenges are being tackled. So I, I cannot see a positive change. And if any positive change happens, it's because the regime is maybe 
offering October 16th. That's not that's not where that is not the goal. So, on a on a lighter note, <laughs> <laughs> I um I try like you're doing, like people that I admire, and you're one of them. I try to document whatever I can among voices that either I admire or I've I've grown to admire people that supported this revolution and still support it and they support it for all the reasons we discussed I try to capture their voices and and lock it and maybe this is a way of doing two things on a private capacity I'm trying to share my father's words and maybe his reflections and trying to project what he would what he'd be saying what he'd be doing right now mm-hmm. so I try to keep him alive in that sense and I also try to keep alive the thoughts the passions the the hope and all the euphoria that both of us witnessed uh, I try to preserve that and maybe if it's not this round maybe next time and if it's not next time who knows when it will happen one day one day Lebanon will be a better place one day and I hope that these discussions these conversations may offer something maybe the things that we got right and probably more importantly the things we got wrong and especially always always keeping voices that we lost keeping them alive Samir Asir is one of them he enters the podcast regularly um, he's actually I mean I owe the tour to him I owe storytelling I think in large part to him and uh, what better man to celebrate than Samir Asir so I hope that answers that question it does Igoni thank you a lot for your time Habibi Joy thank you Thank you.